Right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the joy of uh, being together today and sharing your word and a song. We thank you for the truth of what the writers put forward in those hymn notes. And so thank you for the joy of being able to lift up, lift up our voices to you. And Lord, we thank you for bringing us through this last week. I know many people have struggled with uh, sicknesses and just a lot of various illnesses. We even pray for our world as this coronavirus is going about. Lord, we pray for our folks here in our own area that uh, healing would come upon their bodies from the littlest ones to the oldest. Lord, we count it a joy now to be with you and to look into your word today. I pray that you'd help me to think clearly as this is a challenging subject to deal with and to work through and that you would give us all clarity as we break apart, tear apart your word as we hear Jesus preach this from the mountain. And Lord, I know we'll be blessed if we just really pay attention and do our diligence to discern what you've shared with those folks as you did many years ago. And so thank you for this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're still in our series on the foundational truths of the from the Sermon on the Mount, and I say that very specifically. That's what these certainly are, and I hope you're finding that to be true, uh, that this is a blessing to you as you're kind of finding yourself sitting there with the crowd of people and the disciples hearing what Jesus has to say. Now today is going to, as I said in my prayer, going to be a little challenging for you. It's going to seem a little bit like a theology class, and uh, I want to emphasize the importance of theology just for a moment. Now, theology just simply is a word that we use to refer to what you believe about the Bible, and specifically what God is teaching about himself. So please don't tune out. Uh, I rather suspect many of you are excited about the fact that you understand about the Trinity, right? That you understand about salvation, that you're aware of what God has done, that you are aware of uh, the various teachings of Jesus, well, all that's theology. God is presenting to us through his word theological understanding. Unfortunately, there are many people, and let's show this screen for uh, this little cartoon. Unfortunately, there are many people that are a lot like uh, this when they think about church life and theology. So you see this guy here, and this is evidently in heaven, and we'll just call this St. Peter since he seems to be the one who gets the jokes a lot of times. And he asks the question, what's the first question you'd like to ask Jesus? That's a good question, isn't it? But notice what he says. What's the point of algebra? Okay, well, that's funny because that's what's on people's mind, but that's probably not exactly what the guy has in mind here. Could be Jesus cares about algebra. He cares about everything that's going on in our lives. But the issue is, what does God really say about himself? Is that really what we want to ask Jesus? Well, so theology helps us understand some of these things. So keep your thinking caps on today as we begin to look through what Jesus is going to share with those folks who are on the mountain. So stand with me as we read chapter 5. We're going to read all the way through verse 20 from verse 17. not going to cover all this today. I'm going to break this up. This is a very, very important section one of the most exciting sections if we're thinking properly about what Jesus is telling us here. So beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke 
shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, praise the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus has some very, very stern words here in verses 19 and 20. We're going to reserve those for a later time. We want to get the gist of what he's really talking about here in the beginning. Now this verse admittedly, in verse 17 especially, would be one that we would kind of go past pretty quickly. We would think we'd have a good understanding of what Jesus is teaching here and what he's saying. In our Gentile life, now this is specifically going to really refer to the Jews here, but we're going to get some meat out of it for ourselves. As Gentiles, we have a thinking, the thinking that, well, you know, that really doesn't apply to me, so I'll just kind of skirt past that real quickly. But it is incredibly important. If you're going to understand what Jesus is going to talk about in verses 19 and 20, and then the rest of the sermon, you've got to understand what he's saying here in verse 17. So this is hugely foundational because he is going to elevate and promote Scripture. Very, very critical. When I thought about this, I thought about the first time I looked in a Gideon Bible and I saw the little paragraph that describes what the Bible is. You know what I'm talking about? If you've ever looked in one of the Gideon Bibles, they have them on the front flyleaf somewhere. Let me just read it to you. This is what the Gideons have put in there over the years, and it has sustained all this time. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, too, heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. That is so well written, isn't it? What a beautiful abstract, if you will, of the scriptures. And I just have loved that over the years. I remember reading that as a new believer and just thinking, wow, this is so powerful. And so as I thought about that in light of what we're going to be studying here, you'll also remember back in November, and you won't remember that necessarily, but I worked us through a series on God's authority and really embracing the authority of God and understanding that there are certain aspects of knowledge that we have to have if we're going to really accept who God is. One of those was his word, and that was the title, Trusting the Word of God as Our Authority for Life. And in that message, if you remember, I shared with you that the Holy Scripture is written from the word called, well, Scripture actually means graphe in Greek, and that just means the documents or the holy writings of God. What you have in your hands is a translation of the holy writings of God. This is God's word given to us. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, 
all scripture, this graphe, is inspired by God. Inspired means God breathed. It was literally given to us from the very breath and the mind of God. Now, the scripture that Paul was talking about was the Old Testament. Some people have been a little confused about that. The New Testament was not completed at that time. And so what he was referring to was the writing of the Old Testament. Now, later, Peter, the apostle Peter, is going to say that the New Testament writings that were given through Paul and, and others are as much sacred scripture. And you can see that in 2 Peter 3:15, regarding the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our be- uh, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, Peter is acknowledging here, hey, sometimes theology is a little difficult to understand. Even the writings of Paul can be challenging, is what Peter's saying, but this is God's word to us. It's holy scripture. It is God-breathed, and that became the New Testament. And so all of that was in the message that we had before, and, and God has, over time, not only just revealed through Paul and Peter and the original disciples, but you know yourself that God revealed through prophets. In fact, Hebrews 1 Verse 1 and 2 starts out this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, God has spoken to people in the past. God's used people in the past to bring the truth of his word to us. We've got Noah, we've got Abraham, we've got Moses and Joshua, we've got Elijah and Elisha and many other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and on and on it goes. So I think the point is, just as a way to get our our minds in gear, we need to understand and be reminded that the scriptures are the writings of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may be saying, I don't have any problem with that. Well, listen, there are many people who have a problem with that. There are many people that you're going to encounter over the course of your life that are struggling greatly with that. You may be a person that says, you know, I'd love to sit and read the Bible, but there's so much I just don't understand. I was like that. I understand that uh, that frustration. Well, we start here with the basic concept that this is the Word of God. Now let's go into the context of the letter here for a second. The people sitting on the side of the mountain understood and believed the Scriptures well, we're talking about the Old Testament now, to be the Word of God. They believed that. And they were attracted to Jesus because he was promoting the truth of God as the prophets told what God would be like as he came. And there were certain numbers of them that were sitting there. And I don't know who those people were. I do know that the disciples that were following Jesus that he had called were certainly of this. And they would have been the preeminent ones that he was talking to or the mainstay of the people he was talking to. But the people believed that the Messiah would be coming. They knew that the prophecies foretold him. And so this was a, in a very exciting time for them. And it so attracted them to Jesus that they, they were just longing for somebody to come in the name of God. You remember we've talked about this many times over because they were under such oppression, not only from the Romans, but from their own spiritual leaders that they were just desiring for somebody to love them, for God to wrap his arms around them and care for them and to heal them, to free them from the bondage physically from the Romans, but also from the spiritual bondage of their religious leaders. In fact, some of them believed that when the Messiah came, that he would completely do away with the Old Testament law. 
That's what they believed. And they took that from passages like Jeremiah 31. Behold, Jeremiah says, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. They believed that. But it also caused a little bit of a confusion for them. Because on the one hand, the people believed the Pharisees and the Sadducees' teachings on the law, but what they were hearing from Jesus was compelling in a different way. Jesus was so radically different from what they had been taught and tutored through. They were looking for someone to be real to them. In fact, I hear that more commonly now, is that the younger crowd is saying, you know, we've been through the years of church life and we're just looking for the reality of God. And I think the people of Jesus' day now were, in this particular instance, were thinking the same thing, that it made sense to them that God was wanting to change the heart as they've listened to this first part of the sermon, that he's all about the heart. And so what the people wanted to know here is, so Lord, what are we doing? Are, are we doing away with the law that we've had forever that's been our teacher and that we've sat under for so long? Or are you going to destroy all of that and start over with something new? This was kind of the question that was on their mind. And let's just put ourselves in their place for just a minute. For centuries, again, all they knew was God's law. And now Jesus was coming in or had come and he had kind of quickly come onto the scene, you remember? Uh, for 30 years he'd really been very obscure We know about his birth, but there were very few that really knew about that. And now he's bolted onto the scene and proclaimed a teaching that was really very foreign, and I'll show you this in how foreign in just a minute, to what they had been hearing. And so there was this drawing effect of Jesus, but it was very, very different. Jesus was humble. The Pharisees were not. Jesus was able to refute the leaders and the teachers of Israel through his life and constantly challenging them in their hypocrisy. And in fact, in some of the letters of the gospel or some of the sections of the gospel, Jesus refers to them as hypocrites many times over. And so as the people are processing all of this, you can imagine if you're one of those, you're kind of thinking, what's going on here? Who is this person really? And has he come to overturn our traditional system that we've been a part of for so many years? I mean, who is this guy? This was change. I mean, this was big change. This was monumental change. And people don't do real well with change, right? I mean, there's a sense about change that we all kind of like as long as it doesn't go too far. But God is a God of change. And sometimes people respond in different ways to change, But one thing change really does is it often initially causes some kind of pain. It costs us something. And it was going to cost the people something. In other words, if we think about us, when you've been doing something for years and you try to make a change in that system that you've been working through, whatever it may be, often there's some real challenges with that. And you know the frustration. I mean, it can be painful. It's going to cost you something, as I said. We have taken advantage of life circumstances here at Laurel Hill and we've made some changes in the sanctuary, 
right? Some of you haven't been really excited about that because it's change. And change is painful. Change is good. We all live through change. We deal with it. But sometimes change really causes us to scratch our heads a little bit. You know, many of you have memories of things that have happened in this room. In fact, one of the things I'm excited about is that we did keep some of the pews here, at least a square of them, just as a reminder of that, hey, we're not forgetting all the blessings that God has provided. Some of you can remember back to the days when the carpet was still red, symbolizing the blood of Jesus, when the choir still sang up here. And you think about the changes that have occurred over the years, and sometimes that causes some real issues in our, in our hearts for all of us. We're all kind of like that, whether it be literal changes or emotional changes. We, we get that. Some of you know what it's like to leave a job after many, many years, leaving the familiarity of, of a house that you were in for so many years, and you have memories of children being brought up in those days and the good times and some of the things that you've had to struggle through. You get the, the issue there. Or when a loved one dies, you understand how challenging that can be, probably the hardest thing for any of us to ever experience, what it's like when somebody that we love and have spent so many years of our life together with goes on to be with the Lord or or maybe they don't because you know that they don't know the Lord and you know now where they are in eternity. So change is hard, but it's necessary. And one of the things that I think God uses change for is it helps us to always go back to Him. It helps us to go back to Him and to focus on Him and to keep reminded of the fact that He is doing a great work. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's refocusing the people on God. It's as if he's just taking their faces and he's saying, listen, you've been so focused on the traditional system that you've brought, been brought up in. I want to reorient you to where you are seeing with your heart now the inward parts of your life so that you can change and become the people that I want you to be. And this is not something new. Um, he had been doing this for a long time through the prophets and through the teachings of people. The prophets all foretold all this. Even in the beginning, God had set this up to be the way that Jesus is now proclaiming from his own life. And so that's why he began the sermon the way he did. He was wanting to build into the people what the character of God's people really looked like. And that was what the Beatitudes were all about. And once the character was clarified, we saw this last time, he was commissioning them with their new hearts to go out and to understand that they were the salt and the light of the world. Here's your changed heart. This is your character. Now I want to commission you to go out and be the believer that I've really called you to be. And now once those two foundations are established, and I'm just kind of giving you a flow of how his sermon has gone so that you're seeing it in your mind's eye, once he's established the character and the commission, he's now going to go back to the core of why. Why we are like this. Let's look at the foundation of why we are to be the people that we are. Let's just do a little visual here. And I did this a lot for my sake as I was studying through this, but let's look at the first slide here, and hopefully this will make sense to you just real quickly. So he starts out here with the Beatitudes, and this is the character of the believer. This was Matthew 3 through 12, 5 through, through 12, and this was the commissioning of salt and light, go out, be the people that I want you to be. And now today he's going to talk about the core of the believer, which is going to have to be, beloved, the Word of God. The core of every believer has to be the Word of God. All right, now, with that understanding, that's a little bit about the people. Let's talk about 
the leaders, because they become very important in our understanding of where the people were theologically in their awareness of the scriptures. Israel, as you know, was governed by these spiritual leaders. We've talked about that through other messages. The predominant ones, the ultra-conservative ones, were the Pharisees. You remember that subject? I won't go back through all of that. Just remember that. If you need to review some of that, you can go back into previous messages. They were the ones who were concerned with keeping the law. They were the strict religionists. So strict that they drove people away. Now, the truth is, the law is impossible to keep. It was impossible to keep. It would still be impossible to keep. It was so demanding of people. It was stern. It was deeply challenging. And so... The Pharisees, knowing that even in their own lives, created ways to be able to keep the laws that would make them feel better, at least outwardly. They weren't concerned about their hearts because it was too hard to change their hearts. And so they said, aha, here's what we'll do. We'll focus on the ceremonies that we can see externally. We'll focus on the rituals. We'll focus on the outward acts And we'll set ourselves up as the models for the people to follow. Well, you understand what happens in a case like that. The sinful nature takes over when people are the focus instead of God being the focus. And that's exactly what happened. So they put themselves above everybody and demanded, really, service from the people. That's the kind of spiritual leadership they had. Now, we talked about this, again, in the other message some weeks ago, that maybe you've been under some leadership like that where you were brought up in a kind of a spiritually dictatorial type environment, theologically, where it was more don'ts than do's. And your idea of religion and God has been, well, basically all I know is God says don't, 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 don't. And you completely miss what God has said about the heart and what he wants us to do and what he wants us to be. Now, the tragedy in something like that is, especially when it came to these Pharisees, they focused on what they could keep in the law. In other words, they understood that God had given this law, but there was so much of it that they couldn't keep. They said, okay, we'll figure out what we can keep. And there were things about it, and I'll explain this in just a minute, that they saw and they somewhat understood, and again, you might be like this, but they just couldn't figure out how it applied to my everyday life. And so they did their best to come up with ways to do that, to make it easier for themselves. In other words, what they did is they were lowering the standard. When God gave his law, he set a standard. And that standard was impossible for man to keep. And so man says, aha, in his aha moment, I will create a standard that I can keep that's far easier than what God has established. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you've missed it now. You've lowered the standard requirements of God's holiness. And I'm back here now as God come in the flesh to raise the standard bar back to where it needs to be and where it should be all along. So what the religionists thought was we're keeping God's commandments. But what they had done is they had given in to lowering it. And Jesus comes to point that out and say, your heart needs to change. There's some things that you're doing that's not right. Now, let's talk about that and how that's happening in our lives today, how law is changing to fit man. This is an article that was done many years ago. And I want to read this to you because I think you're going to be able to identify with it if you're paying attention to culture at all. The author says, The Western culture has had a massive loss of confidence in law and in religion. That's true, isn't it? 
One of the most important causes of this double loss of confidence is the radical separation that has been made between the two. The author concludes that you cannot have workable rules for behavior without religion. Because only religion provides an absolute base on which morality and law can be based. The author fears that Western society is doomed to relativism in law because of the loss of an absolute. When men break away from the idea of an authoritative religion, and even from the concept of God, they break away from the possibility of absolute truth. Their only remaining resource is existential relativism, a slippery, unstable, and ever-changing base on which no authoritative system of law or morals can be built. Religionless law can never command authority. In that same book, the author notes another gentleman who is writing, and he says that in contrast to religion, which has become undisguisedly pragmatic human process, it is made by men and it lays no claim to divine origin or eternal validity. The author says that this observation leads to this other's author's observation that the view that is a judge is that a judge, a literal legal judge, in reaching a decision is not propounding a truth, but is rather experimenting in the solution of a problem, as if his decision is reversed by a higher quarter of its subsequently overruled. That does not mean it was wrong, but only that it was or became in the course of time unsatisfactory. Having broken away from religion, the author says, law is now characterized by existential relativism. Indeed, it is now generally recognized that no judicial decision is ever final, that the law both follows the event, it is not eternal or certain, and is made by man, it is not divine or true. He goes on finally to say, if law is merely an experiment, and if judicial decisions are only hunches, why should individuals or groups of people observe those legal rules or commands that do not conform to their own interests? Now that was a lot, but that was written over 40 years ago, and here's basically what he's saying. The legal system of our day, then, had decided that there is no absolute truth to base moral law upon. And so when you get into the courtroom, the judge then gives his opinion in his or her judgment. And if he or she is wrong about their opinion, then somebody else will change it later. When you do that, and there is no core foundational authority to base your decision upon, then everything is free game, right? Now tell me we're not seeing that in our legal system today, in the thinking of people's minds. We have people coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas. Why? Because it fits me. And so one person will go to court, just as an example of what he's talking about here. A judge will make a decision. They'll say, I don't like that decision. They'll go to somebody else, and they'll get the answer and keep going until they get the answer that they want. Why? Because when God is thrown out and his word is thrown out, there is no plumb line anymore. There's no foundation. There's no core. You see, really, and this is going to be controversial, but really God never designed for his laws to be outside of the state. When God established his word, he meant it to be the foundation of humanity. And this is what Jesus is going to be arguing here. But we have a culture, especially in America, where everything, as I said, is free game. Whatever you think, okay, well, I can't challenge you because that's your thought and you must be right. I have my thoughts, so we'll just have to agree to live life in basic chaos. And when you live like that, a society is not going to be able to last very long. I was thinking about this and some of the things that I've experienced myself. And 
I know now, even in the school system today, there is no absolute truth that can be promoted anymore. And guess who knows that firsthand? The children, right? And so they're going to challenge everything because they know that there's no real recourse that anybody can go back to. God has been thrown out, so there's no real central core. So it's left to anybody's opinion. And so what happens is administration just lets the children do whatever they want, whenever they want, and the teachers have no ability to challenge it because everybody's thought of truth is all over the place. One of the illustrations I've thought about over the years and have used even as a memory in my own mind is just the simple concept of a tape measure, and everybody understands what a basic tape measure is. You imagine what a house would look like if two carpenters used two different tape measures to build the same house. I mean, that thing would be the picture that would hit the front of every news uh, magazine. Because it would be the weirdest thing that anybody, you know, the guy's inch is this long versus the guy's inch that's this long. And we all understand that that is ridiculous. You can't build something like that. There has to be a standard. There has to be something that tells everyone who's involved that this is what's right. But the reality is that rules without absolute or absolutes are rules without authority. And so... One author writes, if there's no religious absolutes, there can be no basis for real law. A democracy where power is ultimately vested in the people is particularly vulnerable to chaos. How about that? And boy, aren't we seeing that. The same author says, when God is abandoned, truth is abandoned. And when truth is abandoned, the basis for morals and law is abandoned. A consistent, coherent legal system cannot be built on philosophical humanism, on the principle that right and wrong fluctuate according to man's ideas and feelings. All right, now, you understand that. Let's look now again more specifically at the context of what happened to get the religious leaders to this point. How did this happen in Israel and to why Jesus is even referring to it? When Jesus refers to the law of God, let's be careful about this and be clear. This is a phrase that's used numerous times over in Scripture. What he's talking about is everything that God had given the people which began in the Ten Commandments. Now, this is going to help you with your thinking through some things in life, so pay attention. God gave those commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, and we're listed. those are listed for us in Exodus 20. I'm going to read those in just a second. They were the foundational laws from God that were designed by God to guide the people's hearts. That's what God was after. That's what he's always been after. So they would have a clear understanding of how they are to operate morally within the context of their community. That's why God gave these things, and in the society, and then at the same time be pleasing to God. In fact, let's just look at some of those, if you haven't read through those in a while. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. This is the foundation. And I'll share with you something else that's even supporting that found, this foundation. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. And whenever you read the Old Testament, you see that phrase a lot too. God will make a statement and he'll say, I am the Lord. He'll make a statement. I am the Lord. A statement. I am the Lord, statement. I am the Lord. What do you think God wants them to hear? I'm the Lord. You're to listen. You're not the Lord. I'm the Lord. 
And so he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. I'll talk about this in a minute. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female, servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And that was the basic listing of the Ten Commandments that Moses received while he was on the law from God. But God also knew that these Ten Commandments would not satisfy every situation that man could come up with, right? I mean, we just live a lot of life, and there are a lot of things that people have questions about. And so what he did was he had Moses now, and we see this in Deuteronomy, elaborate on these Ten Commandments by having him write out in a more descriptive way the laws of God. And those laws, that writing then, became the first five books in your Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. That's an elaboration of these ten ten, uh, commandments. But then, because God understood man's mind, he also later, as I've already referred to, given prophets who would take those commandments, the first five books, and elaborate on what Moses had elaborated on to make it even more clear to the people, always, though, drawing people back to their moral understanding. That's what the prophets did. They would always point backwards and say, but God said, but God said, but God said, and refocusing their hearts on what the Lord had said. And all of that now, from the Ten Commandments, to the first five books, to the prophets, became what we now call the Old Testament. That's what became known as. Now, by the time of Jesus, now listen carefully, by the time of Jesus, the leaders of Israel had forfeited the real demands of the law. And as I said earlier, they they had taken and turned something that God had established into something much easier to keep up with, which became more external then it became internal. Now, folks, listen. People have done that with God for centuries. They have taken what God has said and said, oh, you know what? That's a little too hard for me to keep up with, and so I'm just going to fulfill things of God in the way that I think God wants it to be fulfilled. And when we start doing that, we begin to dictate to God what we think is right, and we throw out what we don't like, because here's the deal. It's far harder to change according to the way God wants us to change than the way we want to change, right? I mean, when we want to change, it's smooth sailing and it's fun. 
But when God requires change, it's painful because he always challenges us in the most difficult areas that we hold on to the tightest, right? Is that correct? Absolutely, it's correct. And so the Pharisees, these religious leaders were saying, this is too hard. We got to do something to be holy still, but figure out a way to make it a lot easier. So let me read to you some things here that they did in order to anticipate whatever came up in life. You're going to laugh at some of these. One of the things that they asked was, okay, we're not supposed to work, so what does that really mean? To the command not to work on the Sabbath, I'm just reading from a a paragraph here that I found, they added the idea that carrying a burden was a form of work. And then they faced the question of determining exactly what constituted a burden. They decided that a burden is food equal to the weight of a fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, Milk enough for one swallow, uh, for one swallow of honey, enough to put on a wound, enough oil to put on a wound, enough oil to anoint a small member of the body, water enough to moisten eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read that's R E E D, enough to make a pen, and so on and so on. To carry anything more than those prescribed amounts on the Sabbath was to break the law. Since it was not possible to anticipate or provide for every contingency, much time was spent arguing about such things as whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out on the Sabbath with a needle stuck in his robe, or whether moving a lamp from one place in a room to another was permissible. Some strict interpreters believe that even wearing an artificial leg or using a crutch on the Sabbath constituted work and argued about whether or not a parent could lift a child on the Sabbath. They decided that to heal was work but made exceptions for grave situations, but only enough treatment to keep the patient from getting worse was allowed. He could not be fully treated until after the Sabbath. Now that's just a little phrase of the ideas in the mind of the leaders as and what they were promoting to the people and can you imagine living under that kind of system and constantly questioning your righteousness before the lord if i did this kind of thing or i accidentally made this concession this is what it looked like in a figurative way i, I did all of this so i could see it with my own eye and i'm just going to show this hope this makes sense to you So this is Israel's view of God's law. They understood that there were the Ten Commandments. We've already established that. Then there were the first five books of the Bible, which led to the prophets, and God refers to those as the scriptures or the the Old Testament. But on top of that, this is the part we're talking about right now, the leaders created these traditions. And you'll hear in the writings in the Gospels, Jesus constantly bringing up the traditions. This is what he's talking about. And this is what he attacks so vehemently against these religious leaders, not the first three. Now, for those traditions, God never considered the traditions to be a law, a part of God's law and the prophets. So when you see the phrase law and prophets in the scriptures, get the tradition part out of your mind. God is not talking about that. They were never a part of God's plan. He's always referring to the Ten Commandments, the first five books, which is the Pentateuch, and then even the prophetic writings, not the tradition. So let me show you a diagram that will help you give, get a little bit of clarity on that. Notice the right side of the screen here. I've got written here, man's standards 
for man. That's basically what, basically what the leaders did, right? So they got the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch. Then they created what was called the traditions, or another phrase, and I didn't mention this, is the oral law. What we think God really means by this, and instead of it being written down, they would just pass it along in an oral sense of teaching. Now, this is just for your understanding of some terms. You don't have to remember all this. The summary of the oral law became what was known as the Mishnah. Okay, that was somebody who said, all right, let's summarize all of this, and we'll write it down in a summary form, and that's what's referred to in Judaism as the Mishnah. Now, the commentary on the Mishnah is called the Talmud. Okay? So you'll see these phrases from time to time as you're talking to people. And a Jewish person will understand this very well if they've had any kind of training at all. We as Gentiles don't typically go through all of this, but this is what's in the mind of the typical Jewish person, and this is what was being developed in the day that Jesus was making his statement in verse 17. Now the standards that God is talking about over here is, hey, you know what? My heart has always been for you to respect each other and you to have reverence for me. That's the reason he began with the moral law. The Ten Commandments, by the way, are all about morality. If you think carefully, God is helping the people to see, here's what I'm after. I want you to be people who are moral, dealing properly with me and with each other from the heart. That's really what the Ten Commandments are about. Man doesn't do that well. His heart is very hard. And so he wants to create something that he can follow of his own making. But from that then came those Ten Commandments, which became the, the, the Pentateuch later. As we've, you see how this comes together? And it begins to make sense for us? And this is why it started to make sense to me now. I was at a prison one time some years ago, and you remember this story, and there were two Orthodox rabbis who came in to visit a guy. Had their black coats on, their white shirts, black pants, had the black straight-brimmed hat with the little... Uh, hair things coming down, and I was so excited to go talk to them. You remember me telling you that story? And so I got an opportunity, and I wanted to challenge them a little bit with what they believed about what the Scripture said. And one of them said to me, finally, he said, you have to understand, we don't go by the Bible like you go by. Well, I didn't understand all of what we're talking about here today. But this is what he was saying. We go by the traditions, the Mishnah and the Talmud. That became more authoritative to the Jews than God's word did. Okay? And so this is why they're lost so much in their own making. But we can become the same way if we're not careful. And again, it happens all the time. People who don't understand the scriptures will develop things, and I'm talking about even in Baptist churches, that God has not said and make it some kind of law. Right? Ladies, you remember the whole thing about women not being able to wear pants? I don't see it. Okay? There's a lot of things that God has, or people have promoted over the years to create some sense of holiness that make them feel better about being righteous, but God has never said anything about it. And Jesus came onto a scene where that was rampant, and he came to clarify it and make sense out of it. So you begin to understand, wait a minute, the people in their minds were going, who is this Jesus? We hear him, we watch him, we see what he's saying, and man, that sure makes sense, and it sure sounds good, but boy, that's different from everything that we've been taught. It was very freeing for them, very liberating, and it should be for us. Now let's back, get back to verse 17. Jesus says now, with all that understanding, now we got a good idea what's in his mind. He says, do not think 
that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but what? To fulfill. Okay, now again, we know what he's talking about. And the people on the mountain would know what he's talking about. Jesus was talking about all of the Old Testament scriptures. I came to fulfill it all. Not the traditions. We're going to throw those out. I came to fulfill the law. And the scriptures, and let's get into this a little bit further now. I told you to keep your thinking hats on. The people would have understood this, so we're putting ourselves in the place of where the people were so that you're understanding what a Jew would think. There were three aspects to the law, or three parts of the law that was broken up into the moral law, the uh, judicial law, and then the ceremonial law. And you're going to see this. Now, if you do Bible study, and I hope you do. Everybody shake their head like this. Yes, I do Bible study, and I typically skip over the parts I don't understand, right? And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to understand what I've written because it is timeless. It is for all generations, for all people. But we've got to understand the context and the culture so that we're really understanding it. So that you would know that there were three parts to God's law. We're talking about everything that God has put in the Old Testament. The moral law was for all men. That's us. God is all about morality. So the moral law crossed over everything. That was the foundation for everything, for every every biblical time there is in history. The judicial system was for the nation of Israel alone. The ceremonial system was for Israel alone. But Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of that. Now, the judicial system was just what it sounds like. It was for the nation of Israel to have a legal system that they could be established on and operate through as a nation. The ceremonial had to do all with the worship. And that's the part about the tabernacle and what was required and what wasn't required and all of that good stuff. Let's give you a little visual of that. Here's what it looks like. So foundationally, we still have God saying, I want reverence and I want respect. And we'll see that when we get to Matthew 22. That has always been the case. On top of that, God said, here's how I want to show you this. That's going to be through the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch. Now, the Old Testament then from there is divided into these things. Here's the law of God. We have the moral law. That's for all men. It regulated the behavior based on the Ten Commandments. Then we had the judicial law. Sorry for the color here. That's for Israel only, for functioning as a nation. That was given by Moses later. The ceremonial law for Israel only, which which was the prescribed form of worship. People have often said, why do they have to go through all that stuff? I mean, it's kind of weird sacrificing animals, and they had to burn this, and they had to offer this, and if they did this, they had to do this. And Man, how'd you like to live under that system? You think it's tough changing the time from 9.30 to 9 o'clock for Sunday school? I mean, some of you all fussed about that? Well, how would you like it if you had to bring an ox every day? Or go to the store and find a lamb without blemish? If you couldn't afford that, then you got to go talk to Joe about his pigeons and bring that, right? I mean, and if that wasn't enough, you got to go through the ceremonial cleansing. And ladies, you know how hard that would be for you. I mean, good grief. Yes, we're thankful that Jesus has come to fulfill all the law. All right, let's look at that. So you might be asking, if the judicial and the ceremonial law was for Israel, was for Israel then what law is God... Uh, of God is Jesus talking about here. Again, I've already said all of them because it's all from God. And we're not talking about the traditions. Get rid of that. Jesus blitzed them on that. 
We're talking about the whole law. So when Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. So hold on to it, folks, is what he's saying. And now you know what he's talking about. Because this writing, this Old Testament, is going to detail everything about my life, Jesus is saying. I am the embodiment of it all. Now keep listening. The word is, he fulfilled it. That doesn't mean he accomplished it. That means he filled it up. He made it happen, if you understand. He didn't come to just teach it. He didn't come to just teach about righteousness. He didn't set up himself as a guru of sorts. It says, hey, go do this, 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 and this, and you'll be okay. He didn't come just to model it. He came, the scriptures say, as our righteousness. He came as our righteousness. He fulfilled everything that was necessary and fulfilled everything that God said would come. That's what he meant. Let's talk about each one of these. Three, concerning the moral law, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly by obeying every moral teaching perfectly. He was without sin. So from his heart, he fulfilled the Ten Commandments perfectly. He never coveted anybody's stuff. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Some of you are looking at each other's clothes and you're going, yeah, I kind of like that. Like those earrings. Boy, I wish I had hair like that. You know, we just do that kind of thing. Let's take an example of the Ten Commandments of how Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. Now, this is a controversial one among people, and this is why it's a good one for us to talk about. Let's talk about keeping the Sabbath. Okay, The Ten Commandments fully said that we are to honor the Sabbath. The whole purpose of the Sabbath was to observe a time of holiness before God, right? I mean, that just makes sense. But it was never intended to be a time to physically do no work. That really wasn't God's purpose, even though that was the prescription for this. He was dealing with the heart. It was never about doing the work. Its purpose was to remove the heart from the daily grind and turn it to God. That's what God's mind behind that was. And because Jesus fulfilled all that perfectly... Listen, the purpose of the Sabbath ended when Jesus came on the scene. The Sabbath teaching, he fulfilled it, he filled it up by being the moral fulfillment of what the Sabbath required. Now the Hebrews, Hebrews, in fact, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that we no longer need a Sabbath day of rest. If you don't believe me, just read Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. The writer is all about lifting up Jesus as our rest. You see, the Sabbath became a picture of the better things to come. Who's the better thing? Christ. He became our rest. Have you ever wondered why the church meets on Sunday and not on Saturday? Because Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath day, right? You ever wondered why we meet on Sundays? I mean, our friends who are the um, Seventh-day Adventists, say that we're hypocrites because we don't meet on Saturday. If you go by any Seventh-day Adventist church, you'll see Saturday Sabbath. Well, why aren't we meeting on Saturday if that was God's prescription? It's a good question. Are we breaking the law of God? No, we're not breaking the law of God. This day, Sunday, became known as the Lord's Day from the early days of the church because 
Jesus was resurrected on Sunday and they were breaking away from the laws that man was bound under because now they understood that Jesus had come as our Sabbath. In him we find our rest, right? Does that make sense? In fact, they did first meet every day of the week when the church started in the book of Acts. But eventually they changed it to just on Sunday. But here's the thing. God has made it very clear that no one day is more holy than another. Now, I don't want you to get lost in this. Because some people will hear, oh, he's saying to me, I don't have to come on Sundays. I'm not saying that at all. Because God has also said, don't forsake yourselves the assembling of each other. And I'm paraphrase. That's what I'm saying. But God is wanting us to understand that every single day is just as holy as the other day. And sometimes our sinful minds will say, well, you know what? We may not audibly say this, but we'll think it. Because today's not Sunday, the holy day, I'm free to do some other stuff. Well, God's saying, you need to think about what you do every day. Because I fulfilled my own requirements for the Sabbath. Let's read what Paul says in Romans 14. Beginning in verse 5, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, he's talking about this observance for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. In other words, everybody is driven by their own convictions. Don't give up the Lord's holy day, which is what? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sunday we come together because we're celebrating together the resurrection of Christ. Right? But every day we live for the Lord. Verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Colossians 2, Paul would say something very similar, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about all the laws. He's saying, look, don't let somebody put you under the bondage of something that God never created. Or when he did create it, he was pointing to a better day. And Christ came to fulfill it all. Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of of what is to come. But listen, the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, the traditional Jewish Sabbath day ended. How did it end? He fulfilled it perfectly by His coming. The purpose of the Sabbath for the Jews was to point to a time when the rest would come. And that was the person of Christ. And don't you know, beloved, when you give your heart to Christ, there is a rest that comes that man can't explain, right? We're set free from the bondage of the things that we deal with because now we can say, if God wills, whatever God's desire is, and we find our rest in Him because He has fulfilled everything necessary for us to rest. Well, the human heart can't live like that very well, and so it creates all kinds of ways to make people feel at rest. And all that does is puts bondage in the heart of people when he's come to do it. Now, what about the judicial law? How did he fulfill that? Well, hear this. When Israel rejected him as the Messiah, 
his death ended God's dealings with them as a nation. Okay, now don't get lost in what I'm saying here. God has not forgotten him. Paul made that very clear in Romans. He's not given up on Israel. But for a time, when he was nailed on the cross, it was the ultimate rejection by the nation. They said, you are not our Messiah. You are not our king. And God said, fine. I will leave you alone and I'm going to open the hearts and the mind of people who are not my people. That's us, the Gentiles. And that's going to usher in what we call the church. And the church will be the avenue through which I work until I rapture the church out. And then I will deal with the Hebrews once again. And I will open their eyes and they will see the truth. Jesus died on the cross and he perfectly fulfilled the Judaic law by being everything that the law required. And this is exactly what Hebrews talks about in verse 8. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there'd been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and this is quoting the prophets, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days. And that's talking about the future to come. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He's talking about Israel. There's coming a day where God will open the eyes of the unbelieving nation that rejected him. And so when Israel rejected him, God opened that door to us. Praise his name. Aren't you thankful for that? But now listen, in the context of what Jesus is telling them on the mountain, I did not come to destroy the law. That's not why I'm here. I came to be the fulfillment of it. I'm in your presence. I am your king. I am your Messiah. Look to me. Turn to me. And become the people that I can make you become. I didn't come to destroy anything of what I wrote. It was all written perfectly. And for every generation to know. But you're to turn to me. And he fulfilled all of that judicial system when they crucified him. There was no nation to rule anymore. They had done away with him. And so his death fulfilled everything that was prophesied about him. So you say, now what about the ceremonial law? How did he fulfill that? Well, sacrifice with the heart was the form of Hebrew worship that God had always prescribed. But when Jesus died, there was no more need for that system. He had perfectly fulfilled it. This is our contention with the Catholic Church. Jesus is not dying daily for us. He died once for all. And Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for any of those who are in Christ. Jesus, the debt has been paid. The ceremony was perfectly fulfilled. In Hebrews 10.19, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? Not by the life of a priest, but by the blood of Jesus. By a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, not the curtain, that was in the tabernacle. You remember that was torn in two when he died on the cross? And so the writer of Hebrews says, the veil is his flesh. He became the curtain, if you will. He became the tabernacle. He became all that the ceremonial system pointed to. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, look, with a sincere what? Heart. You see, it's always about the heart. In full assurance or confidence of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Notice he didn't say our minds, our actions, what we do. He says, no, your heart, because when your heart is changed, everything else will come from that. Beautiful. In fact, do you know what happened in 70 AD? Remember historically what happened in 70 AD? That's right. The Romans destroyed the temple. And I have to believe through the wicked work of Satan, God allowed that to occur to show the people, and we studied this in the genealogy, to not only show them that Jesus was the last and final high priest, but so to also show them that system is done. You destroyed your king, so you think, and therefore I'm leaving you to open up the door to another, and here's the example of that, the temple will come down. It's no longer needed. It's not necessary, leaving him as the last high priest. Listen to this. Aaron was the first and foremost high priest of the old covenant, but he could not compare with the great high priest of the new covenant. Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle, but Christ entered the heavenly. Aaron entered once a year, Christ once for all. Aaron entered beyond the veil, Christ tore the veil in two. Aaron offered many sacrifices, Christ only one. Aaron sacrificed for his own sin, Christ only for the sins of others. Aaron offered the blood of bulls, Christ his own blood. Aaron was a temporary priest, Christ is an eternal one. Aaron was fallible, Christ infallible. Aaron was changeable, Christ unchangeable. Aaron was continual, Christ is final. Aaron's sacrifice was imperfect, Christ was perfect. Aaron's priesthood was insufficient. Christ is all sufficient. Praise his name. And Jesus made this clear, didn't he? Even the, even the structure of the temple pictured Christ. It had one door, and Jesus said, I am the door. It had a brazen altar. Jesus is the altar of sacrifice for us by his own life. There was one labor for cleaning of, cleansing of sin. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There was one lamp inside the sanctuary and Jesus became the light of all mankind. There was bread that was daily put out but had to be replenished. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who takes part in me will be hungry no more. There was incense to represent the prayers of the peace. Uh, the priests, but Jesus' prayers go up for us as he makes intercession for us regularly. There was a mercy seat, but Jesus became and is our mercy seat. And the celebrations couldn't compare to what Christ did. They were prescribed by God to present the Messiah who would come. Passover was that picture of the new covenant to come, right? That Jesus fulfilled perfectly. He became the first fruits of the harvest to God when Jesus rose from the dead. And all of this is prescribed and seen for us in the keeping of the traditions and the, the various festivals and the Passover services that the Hebrews still take part in. And Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law was just a tutor. That doesn't mean it was just a, uh, a, figurative, a figure of speech, but a, a teacher. The law was drawing us to the real Christ to show us who he really is. And so you say, okay, Pastor, that's a lot of theology. Yeah, it is. So what do we really say? What is it that Jesus really wanted these people to understand in verse 17 that he said in such a simple way? He's simply saying this, beloved. Scripture is authoritative. 
It is our authority for this life. And we've said this many times before. How many times does Satan attack through the word of God? To get people to move away from the authority of what God teaches. To say things like, well, you know, I'm just not sure, so sure I believe that. So I'll follow what I understand and I'll just leave the rest alone because it's uncomfortable for me to, to think about changing some of the areas of my life. And so Scripture is devalued in its authority. And that's why we adhere so strongly here to the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord is everything to us. It is God's mind given to us so that we can live righteously from our hearts according to everything that He teaches Again, so often that's what's so so missed. You say, does that mean that we don't follow the Old Testament anymore? Of course we follow the Old Testament. We follow everything that God has said. But we understand that much of the Old Testament was helping us to see the picture of what would be fulfilled in Christ. And so much of the things that are there for Israel we don't need to keep up with because we find that in Christ. But it's essential that we understand the Old Testament so that we know the new. My wife was having a conversation with a guy who said, you don't need the Old Testament anymore. Just study the New Testament. You can't do that. It's essential that we study the Old Testament so that we understand what God has done for us. And we appreciate. Can you imagine the days of Christ when they didn't have the enlightened mind to understand the truth of Scripture for what He's done for us? Talking about being blessed. And then finally, and I'll cover some of this next time. We'll close. He says in verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. God became flesh. John 1, all the way through verse 14, proved it to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and He was in the beginning God. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. You understand, beloved, that again, when you think of the pages of Scripture, try hard not to just think of them as ink and paper, but think of them as the very manifestation of the flesh of Christ given to us in written form that we may know Him and know His mind. Do you understand why Satan so attacks you when it comes to devotion time? Why he works so hard to keep the Word of God out of your mind? This is why you struggle to sit down and have a five-minute time with God? And why you say, oh, man, I just, ugh, and everything comes up and, and there's all kinds of interruptions. you understand why? <clears throat> Excuse me, because... This is the manifestation of God to us. It's not just a book. It is God's word given to us and it is authoritative and we should keep it that way. Listen, let's just say it this way. You cannot be a true follower of God and not see his word as the authority for your life. You can't do it. And this is why we're constantly saying to one another, listen, if you're not studying the Word, how are you going to know when somebody's feeding you a lie? How are you going to know? And there are millions of people that are following after religious leaders and it's all just a lie because they're not really teaching them the foundation of truth. 
That's also one of the reasons why we stay small as a church, I'm convinced. Why the true church is really very small. Jesus said, hey, few there will be that find the way. Because it's demanding and it's challenging. But we find our help and our hope in Jesus, who's given us the word. I hope you never get tired of hearing the word of God. You know, I think what really should happen in all of our hearts is that as we hear of things that we want to know, our first resource should be God. Our first book we should go to should be what God says. Not what every teacher is writing about out there. Not every psychology book, although they have their place. we got to go to God's Word and see what the Lord says. Somebody asked me the other day, what is it that you want for Laurel Hill as a pastor? What is it that you really want for your church? And I thought for a minute and I said, here's what I want. I want the day to come where every one of us immediately in conversation, in action, or whatever it may be in our day, turn to God as the primary source for everything. That our first thought is God. That we would be a people that say, what does God say? What does God say? When I'm filling out a contract for a house, or I'm selling this, or I'm going over here, I'm going on a vacation, should I do this, should I do that? We first say, what does God say? You may think I'm really ridiculous when I say this, but when I get out of bed in the mornings, on Sunday mornings especially, I even say, and I'm not the model here, I'm just telling you how this works in my life, I say, Lord, what do you want me to wear today? I even pray that. What do you want me to wear today? You tell me, Lord, what you want. And that's my heart for us, is that I believe this is God's heart, is that everything we do in this life, first and foremost, is ask of God. God, what do you want? We'll serve you because of what you've done for us. Amen? Now, let's finish here. Let's turn our minds to the Lord's table. Because what a picture. As much as we were just talking theology, Jesus laid out theology for the disciples. On that night, the upper room, he gave to them a picture of himself. That's what this is. I remember sitting as a kid in church and thinking, oh, good, I'm starving. I get a little bit of a snack here now, and the juice is pretty good, so I'll make it to lunch. I remember thinking that, sitting on the back pew with my cousin. But now I understand that what we've just learned and refreshed our minds with is Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper not to give us something to do, but to remind us of himself that he's fulfilled everything necessary for us to have rest in this life. And he says, examine yourselves, right? Examine yourselves. Because those who are not mine and partake in this reminder of who I am in them will bring judgment upon themselves because they take in it, they take it unworthily. This is a holy moment. We don't build law around it. We just simply acknowledge, God, this is what you've ordained for us to do. And so this week of every month is when we set this time aside to examine our hearts and remember what the Lord has done. So let's do that now as the ushers come forward and you begin to have a time of meditation and prayer and we'll distribute these elements.